tendency, the human predicament or human conditioning. And especially for people living in a very competitive society and also people living in a society which stresses so much the importance of the individual, the individual personality, in that we always tend to be quite critical, very, very strong critical faculty. And this critical faculty is turned on to everything, everyone. And because of this critical faculty operating so strongly, so regularly, most of us suffer from uh, a common experience of irritation, aversion, anger, negativity, towards all sorts of objects, including environmental conditions, including people, including institutions, everything. The irritation, the anger, the negativity, the hatred can be directed at anything. Anything can be the object which mm, irritates or the object which causes us to react with this irritation, aversion, negativity and hatred. And of course, I said it was a common human experience. And so, I'm sure that all of you have had the opportunity to experience it at least once in your lifetime, or maybe just once today, maybe many times, either in uh, mild forms or sometimes in uh, very intense forms. And of course it's uh, not a very pleasant condition. It's not a very pleasant experience, either for ourselves or for the others. It's not a pleasant condition when we are the ones who get angry, nor is it a pleasant condition uh, when we are the victims of the, someone else's anger. And of course, for those of us who are, are aware of this, to some degree, see the suffering, the problem there to some degree, there is always the hope or the aspiration to, you know, I'd like to stop, I'd like to get beyond this, or I'd like to change. So many people do ask me, what can I do to, um, you know, to not be such an angry person? What can I do to be more calm or less uh, irritated? And uh, I think this is, uh, of course, of interest to most of us, as I said, who live in a society where there is strong tendencies which cause irritation, anger. In other words, our critical faculty is highly developed. So what does Buddhism offer as a way of dealing with this problem? The other evening when I gave a talk, uh, somebody in the audience did ask me about how to respond to anger from someone else because the normal way to respond to anger is to respond with anger. The normal way to respond to negative uh, energy coming from someone is to respond with negative energy from ourselves. But uh, this evening I would like to speak in just the idea of this force within ourselves, it's whatever causes it, now, whether it's somebody's negativity or whether it's somebody's, sometimes somebody's positive action will still irritate us. We think, oh, don't be so smarmy. If somebody's being nice to us, if we're in a bad mood, we could get very upset. Hmm? Have you ever noticed somebody's being very nice to you, but you're just in a bad mood and you become irritated and angry. Why? Because, oh, it's annoying. <laughs> so this evening I'd like to contemplate with you this reaction that we seem to have. 
the reaction of irritation, aversion, negativity, impatience, and at an extreme level such as hatred. That's very extreme levels. What do we do with it? How can we begin to cope with it and hopefully begin to get beyond it? So now there are three um, approaches which are complementary to each other and I mean this is not I haven't gotten this from any particular book or anything like that it's just from my own contemplation of the problem of how what aspect of Dhamma I can apply in order to help with the situation uh, and the experience of negativity, irritation and anger and so uh, I usually think of three um, a three-pronged attack, if you wish, or three principles of Dhamma, three aspects of Dhamma which uh, are very helpful and I have found them to be helpful in the uh, treatment of this particular illness. It is a mental illness and in, in actual fact this is the first principle of Dhamma that I have found useful in counteracting this negative state called anger, aversion, irritation, negativity. This first principle of Dhamma is to do with applying wisdom, the wisdom that we have, just reason, logic, clear thinking, to that phenomena in order to see the inherent suffering involved in it, to clearly see the disadvantage, the drawback, the suffering uh, of this condition. And I think this is the first and very important step towards getting beyond something like anger and hatred because until we see the drawback and the disadvantage, until we see the suffering, we're not going to have any incentive, any motivation to do anything else about it. This is very much in keeping with the approach of the Buddha because as you well know in the very first discourse the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths and the very first, dis uh, first noble truth of these four is the truth of suffering. And this truth of suffering is, is a very good way to start, isn't it? In other words, the Buddha at the very beginning of his teaching is making us aware of a fundamental fact of existence in order to motivate us to do something about the problem. He's pointing out a problem. This is a problem. You've got to do something about it. Until one realizes there is a problem, one is not going to be motivated to do anything about it. And so, the first thing with regards anger and uh, negativity and hatred is to see, at least to see with reason and a clear mind, when we have clear mind, when we have the ability to consider clearly, to see the suffering there, the suffering inherent in that state, in that condition, in that way of being. It is suffering. Anger is suffering. Hatred is suffering. Irritation is suffering. Negative state of mind is suffering. It's miserable. It's an unpleasant abiding. It's not really worthy of a human being because a human being can do better. Is not really worthy of one aspiring to peace, happiness and enlightenment because it is in fact the complete opposite. So the first thing is to contemplate what is it like, you know, this thing called uh, anger and hatred and even just irritation and negativity. What is it really like to have that state of mind? You know, even using your, uh, when you're really angry it's hard to see, but 
you can, in retrospect, you can consider what's it really like to really clearly see this is suffering, this is misery, this is a hell state. And to see that all our uh, preoccupation with justification, all our preoccupation with uh, finding reasons to justify our anger, just justifying our misery. It's justifying our right to be miserable, to suffer. Justifying our right to wallow in this state of misery. So now, it is very important to see that, to acknowledge it, at least consciously. To acknowledge it, to see it, to understand it. Yeah, this is suffering. And this is not worth, not worthy. This is not really what I want. This is not really what I'm aspiring to. This is not really what I want to cultivate in me. I don't want to go around just proving my right to be angry. But that's not my aspiration in life. My aspiration is to develop more peace, more happiness more freedom of mind. So when we, at least consciously, having contemplated the state of anger, what it does to us, our mental state in itself is a miserable state, what it does to the body, ask any doctor, it's supposed to be very bad for you, physically. Mm. People talk about, you know, if you repress your anger, it must be unhealthy. To To be angry itself is very unhealthy. It's bad for the heart, bad for everything, okay? <laughs> Physically, it's, uh, it's not good for you. And of course, look and see what it creates around you. You have many friends. If, you, if you're a grump, if, you, if you're a very, you know, very angry sort of person, you're not going to have many friends, unless you know, they've got some ulterior motive to be your friends. But if you're really a nasty, grumpy, and angry person who is continually impatient and expresses anger physically and verbally to people around oneself, you know, people are just not going to like being with you. They're not going to like being with us. Yeah, sure, if they have to, because you employ them, they will be for a while until they can find somewhere else to go or if they're married to you until they can get a divorce, or if they're your kids and they can't get away, but when as soon as they can, they will, uh, or they're your friends, but they're not going to be your friends for long. <laughs> you know, because it's unpleasant. You know, it is unpleasant to be uh, in that situation, in that environment where there is this negative uh, energy where there is uh, this uh, negative aversion and anger being expressed. If it, even if it's not acted on, just verbal speech, and even if we don't speak, we, our manner, our, we radiate it anyway, it can be felt. And the consequences are quite unpleasant. As I said, the mental state itself is anguish, is suffering. The physical state is unhealthy. The situations around us are not very pleasant and therefore we have very few friends. We have very few uh, friends and very very few pleasant relationships with the people whom we are living. In actual fact, the the opposite is quite true. People who have loving-kindness, gentle speech, usually have lots of uh, friends and very good relationships. So now this is uh, to really contemplate that. This is the obvious suffering, drawback, disadvantage of this condition or this tendency of mind. Personal mental anguish, physical my physical unhealth or lack of good health and uh, 
just the unpleasantness of the situations around us, relationships. Now when we begin to recognize this very clearly, we, of course, are motivated. We feel, at least we begin to think, hey, this is not so good. I want to, uh, I want to do something about this. This is a problem. This is a problem in my life. This is a problem that I have to deal with, have to do something about. So you, you've been now motivated, having seen the drawback, having seen the fault, you're motivated to do something. So it's very important to see the fault. In actual fact, that the degree to which we see the suffering determines how strong our motivation will be and how effective our attempt at remedying the problem will be. If we see the fault completely, if we see the dukkha, the suffering there completely, clearly, it's almost automatic that we'll drop it, automatic that we can let go. But most of us don't see it so powerfully. We just see, oh, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a nuisance. You know, I've got to do something about it. But it's not so deep. The realization isn't so deep. The understanding isn't so deep. But it's at at least the start. We see, I get this. I have to do something about this. I can't go around losing my temper, flying off, flying off the handle, <laughs> so much, so frequently, so easily, and uh, you know, blasting people here, blasting people there, and um, you know being like a, a whirlwind of negative energy flowing through the place. So what are we going to do? Most of us, I hope, are not that bad, actually. Most of us are probably just ordinary people who, who do have some tendency to act and react with negativity and irritation sometimes. Not that often, maybe. Still, how are we going to deal with it? Well, the next principle of Dhamma, which I think is uh, applicable, and of course this principle now is applicable to everything, you know, every aspect of the practice. This one principle of Dhamma is always applicable. It always uh, acts as the focal point that, that makes everything else possible. And this is the practice of mindfulness and awareness. Because how does anger arise? How do you get angry? How do you get uh, irritable? How do you become caught in that state? It is simply through the reaction to various stimulations, various situations. And that reaction is quite habitual most of the time. In other words, we've got an accumulated tendency the tendency to react in certain ways. So that when situations are such, we have this habitual tendency to react in uh, with negative thoughts or negative speech or negative um, uh, action. So that what happens is that we see something, we hear something, it touches a particular hmm, sensitive area I don't mean in the body, in just the, more in the mind, more in our, it touches the ego somehow. It grates against pride, it grates against the sense of self, uh, the ego, and the reaction is defense and attack. So, and that is quite spontaneous, quite quickly. So that we then think in negative ways, creating the uh, various states of anger. Now that process happens very, very quickly. And quite often, we are not even aware of it. It's just like something touches and we, we just get caught in this mood. We think, oh, I'm really angry. Before we know it, we're angry. And then, it's, of course, the anger is quite strong. And once the anger is strong, that means there's a lot of energy there. In other words, the, the process of negative thinking has carried through to quite a degree 
it's got momentum and it's hard to stop. Very hard to stop. It's just like a bus rolling down the road. Once it's gotten some speed, you know, even if you slam the brakes, it's going to be hard to stop. It's got a lot of momentum. You're, you know, you've got adrenaline pumping through your blood system, and uh, you know, the, there's all this heat in the body. Just the physical state itself is going to tend to condition the mind to keep on thinking negatively. The whole system is in a, it has been activated. So that mindfulness is this ability to know in the present moment what we're doing. And if we are mindful, if we're really mindful, it means that we've got a much better chance of catching things earlier on before the bus gets so much momentum. Catching things earlier on. If you're really there, if you're present and awake, then things come. You know, you see something, you hear something, somebody says something. It irritates. Yes, there's uh, still ego. That's the center. You feel. And there is a tendency to start thinking and react in the habitual way, negative way. But if your mindfulness is there, you can stop because it hasn't gained much momentum, you see. Provided that there is enough mindfulness, one can stop. One can stop that process of proliferation, of thinking which will build up the momentum of negativity, the momentum, the emotional state of anger and aversion, or even irritation, just a negative emotional state that results from the process of proliferation. So if one is mindful, one can catch things early on in the process. The other evening I spoke about the dependent origination, and I explained how this works. Now, being a human being, here we are. You've got a body and a mind. You've got the senses. And so you are sensitive beings. All of us are sensitive beings. Therefore, we experience various impingements, contacts. Every contact has with it a particular feeling, a flavor, a quality. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What that means, it's either perceived as being something gratifying, potentially gratifying, or something potentially uh, threatening. That's basically <coughs> how we see the world. Or neutral. A lot of things are neutral. I mean, I, I guess if you look at the... You know, probably look at this microphone, most of you would see it as neutral. I probably see it as threatening after a while. <laughs> I guess most of you see the microphone, you don't feel it's terribly gratifying. You don't feel it's terribly threatening. It's kind of a neutral thing. If you don't want to give a talk and they're pushing a microphone in front of you, you perceive it very differently. It's no longer a neutral perception. It becomes like a, a threatening perception. So there is the feeling associated with that impingement of seeing the microphone is, oh no, <laughs> you know, not wanting. And out of heedlessness, one could start building up a lot of negativity. Not a talk. How many talks can a person give? And uh, I hate giving talks anyway. And so you think negative thoughts. Now, if you really are very strongly averse, this is not me, by the way. <laughs> I quite, I quite like giving talks sometimes. <laughs> Don't panic. It's only an illustration. Um, so if you feel, you can imagine some people in, who are put in a position where they really don't like being in that position, they could develop a lot of anger or fear or something uh, from the sight of, for instance, a microphone. I get much stronger reactions by the sight of a pen, actually, because I don't like writing. So if anybody tries to put a pen in front of me, this is the experience of being a human being. We have impingements. 
we have contact. In other words, we see, we hear, we touch, we smell, we taste. And also we have mental impingement because we have the ability to just conceive, to bring up memories, to bring up past experience, to think. Now each one of these experiences has with it a flavor. It's either perceived as potentially gratifying or potentially threatening or neutral. In other words, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Now, out of habit and in instinctual conditioning, when we are heedless or not mindful, of course, if something is seen to be threatening or unpleasant, then it's going to cause a, a reaction. I don't want it. The process of thinking stuff. I don't want this. This is bad. I want to get rid of this. How can I escape? Or even worse, how can I get rid of this? How can I destroy it, annihilate it? And so this process of thinking, conceiving, proliferating, coming from aversion to that object which is seen as unpleasant or threatening, creates the state of mild irritation, strong irritation, anger, aversion or hatred. But it's a process. It's something that happens very fast, but it's still a process that follows a procedure. Now, if we are mindful, we can catch it reasonably early. Maybe not rather like the first impingement, but maybe when the first stirrings, the first <coughs> stirrings of negative energy, which is the first... Uh, the start of that uncoiling, unwinding of the proliferation in negativity, which we can feel, and the start, we could catch it there if we're mindful. And if we catch it earlier on like that, you can stop. How do you stop? Simply by remaining mindful. Remaining mindful and, if you are mindful, and if you have done the previous, uh, applied the previous principle of Dhamma where you've been very clear about the fact that this type of state, negative state, is suffering and you don't want to develop this anymore, then that's going to come into your mind. Associated with that mindfulness will be that understanding. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, it's suffering, it's misery. I want to create hell. I don't want to create misery. This is not what I'm. That's not my goal. It's not my intention. So by having that mindfulness, and with the help of this understanding that we should be developing, by having seen the suffering, by having seen the misery, we can keep that habitual or the tendency or the potential. Uh, sort of uh, energy to create anger in check. In other words, we can stop. It is possible to just stop. It's not suppression. It's just not allowing it to run. It's not allowing it to run along that course. All one is doing is making the choice to stop and staying with mindfulness, using this understanding. Now this is... Uh, it's very, very useful for us. It's very helpful. But it is something that requires a lot of uh, mindfulness and awareness. The more understanding we have, in other words, the more clearly we have seen how foolish our habitual reactions are, how much suffering there is there, of course, the easier it is for the mindfulness then to be, or the more this mindfulness will be supported with the understanding and the more easily it can mm, cope with the tendency to react. The more easily it can put the brakes on. So it's just like you put your foot, you remember you've got your foot on the brake. You remember there is a brake. Oh, I've got a brake here. So you're mindful. But now how quickly, you, you know, how powerfully you'll apply that brake depends on how much conviction you have. 
how much commitment you have to stop him. And how much commitment does one have depends on how much have you seen and understood of this uh, state of anger and irritation and, and negativity. Have you really seen that it's stupid and it's foolish and it's harmful and it's suffering and it's a problem? So the, the power uh, of our ability to, uh, with mindfulness then, to, to actually bring it under control depends on the power of, under, of understanding. So that's why a lot of the teaching uh, given is sometimes to do with pointing out just how foolish it is. You know, just how foolish it is. How much suffering it is. Anger, what it does to you. And, and our reactions are like our irritation, our tendency to be irritated. What irritates us? To really contemplate that and see how absolutely foolish it is. You know, sometimes I kind of like to make it seem so ridiculous to myself and to others that you can't help but think that it is a bit, what we're expecting is a bit overboard. And like, you you know, we become irritated because people don't do what you want them to do. You know, if people don't do what you want them to, when you want them to, it's... uh, irritating or people don't can't see they can't see reason in other words they can't see things the way I see it and that's irritating but you know is it uh, is it possible is it really possible that everybody in this world is going to be able to do exactly what I want them to is it possible that everybody in this world is going to see things the way I see it? Is it possible that everybody here in this room is going to agree with me on everything? Is it possible that every situation is going to be in accordance with my wishes, my likes? But that's what we are basically saying because we're becoming irritated when something isn't according to what we think, what we like, what we feel, what we uh, believe. And we find it irritating. It's unreasonable. <coughs> Completely unreasonable. And so, if you just listen to the mind, it is it's really, we are unreasonable. We are making such demands on life and conditions that it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, we go around uh, we, uh, finding fault. That's because of our critical faculty. We can find fault in everything, anything. If somebody's too lazy, we find fault. If they're too diligent, we find fault. If they're really bad, we find fault. If they're really good, we'll find fault, just the same. Have you noticed somebody just too diligent? Why can't you just sit down and relax? Or they're always sitting around doing, why don't you get up and do something and <laughs> give a hand? Somebody's always quiet. Haven't you got a mouth? Haven't you got a tongue? <laughs> they're forever talking. You say, can't you be quiet for a while? And I always give this, I can relate to all these things because I've seen it in myself. The mind that's critical will always find fault with anything. It's completely unreasonable. There's one lady who's, um, I, I tell this story because it's quite, it makes a very good point and it, I think it is quite true to, you know, for a lot of human beings, a lot of us. We often say that, you know, we can't live with so-and-so because they're so nasty and horrible people. This lady had a, uh, was divorced or separated from her husband and I, heard, you know, I knew her sister. I was talking to her sister and she said, oh, my sister is uh, separated from her husband. And I said, oh, what's the problem? Is he is it difficult? Or Oh, she said, oh, no, no. So he's fine. Marvelous man. Wonderful man. He's actually almost a you know, perfect husband. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> she can't stand it. <laughs> he's too good. He's too perfect. She can't tolerate it. She just can't live with it. 
That, was, that is true too. <laughs> that is true. You see, this is it. The irritation, our reaction is unreasonable in that it expects always something which is beyond reason. And uh, life just isn't like that. So we've got to, you know, as I said, really have as, as clear an appreciation, really see it, really contemplate how ridiculous our demands on the world are. How, how ridiculous our demands on other people are and demands on even our bodies, even on the, the weather. Our demands are ridiculous. And it's these demands that we make which, when not met, when not fulfilled, result in us becoming irritated, angry and upset. So let's see, you know, our demands, what sort of demands are we making? Everybody must agree with me. Right? That's reasonable demand to make on five billion people on the planet. Everybody must agree with me. So then I won't get irritated again. Well, at least all the Buddhist society must agree with me. Then I won't be irritated. And that's, that's a reasonable de- <laughs> demand. But that's usually how, from the point that we function, a lot of us, you know, it's just something like that. We, we just expect that people should agree with us. We expect that every, people should do what we think, when we think it should be done. So we put these really unreasonable demands on people, on the environment, on situations, on our bodies, on ourselves, and when these demands, which cannot be met, I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible to be met. Now, one of the things, if you are in charge, one of the very first things you have to learn is one of the um, lessons taught in that little book, The Little Prince. As he went on his journeys to the different planets, he came to one planet where there was a general lived. And... um, I think he was a general, maybe he was a president, dictator, man, one of these people in charge, the symbol of power and authority. And um, one, of the little, one of the things that the, the, the uh, little prince learnt there is that if you want to be obeyed, you must not give the, an order which you know will not be obeyed. So if you want to be, you know, if you, if you don't want to be uh, irritated in the sense of being dif- finding things different to what you demand is don't demand the wrong things, right? Then you will be obeyed. If you de- if you give the right order, then you'll be obeyed. Right? Now, if you tell your body, don't get old, the body won't obey. Okay. If you tell people, you stand in the middle of Melbourne and say. Don't you ever disagree with me? Not one of you. You'll never be. You won't be obeyed. But so, if we give the right order, in other words, our demands of the world are not unrealistic. They're not beyond what is in accordance with nature, in accordance with Dhamma. Then we won't. Um, we won't be so frustrated and uh, disappointed. So they have quite a clear picture of what sort of things we're demanding. In other words, our view, just these subtle, what you would say, subconscious, they're not fully conscious, we're not making the statement consciously, but then we act from it as if that is what we are expecting. We're expecting that people will agree with us. We're expecting that people will do what we like, what we want. Whereas in actual fact, most of the times, of course they don't. See the drawback, the fault, the suffering inherent in the negative reaction. See that it comes from some <coughs> foolishness of unrealistic expectations and unrealistic demands. You can see that. That's where the more we see this, the more understanding we have. 
then we cultivate mindfulness. Mindfulness so that we can break out of the habitual, because a lot of it is just habitual. You know, the habit, the tendencies are there, so we've got to be mindful. As soon as you fall asleep, the old will take over. As soon as you slip up, of course, anger and the old way of reacting will take over. And so mindfulness is that which enables us to uh, respond in a different way, enables us to assess in a different way, enables us to apply the understanding that we should have, enables us to redirect our lives, to take charge once again. So wakefulness is very important if we want to begin to uh, take hold of and get a little bit above this tendency that we have towards irritation, negativity, anger, hatred. The understanding and then the ability to use that understanding, mindfulness, awareness, to see when it starts to come, before it takes over, before it overwhelms, so that one can stop before it becomes a problem. Now, that in itself is, is very good. But as you well know, it's not easy, is it? Not easy. Because the, to develop mindfulness is quite hard and the forgetfulness is so, so insisting. So, so permeating. It just sneaks up on you. And before you know it, that's it. <laughs> You're just caught in the habitual, mechanical, once again. And of course, the most difficult the times when you need it the most is when you have it the least. You need it the most in the familiar situations, that's when you have it the least. Because of the power of habit, it's in that familiar situation, habit is very strong. So, what is also very, very important and very valuable uh, because in actual fact, just these two principles that Dhamma applied will help, but most of us find that it doesn't really go very far, simply because our mindfulness is not good enough, really. So there is another principle of Dhamma which can be used and is very helpful, because this third principle of Dhamma, what it actually does is, is a conscious effort to recondition recondition the mind. In other words, actually change our habitual tendencies. Change our habitual perception and habitual reaction. Recondition. Change your personality. Change your personality, your habit, your character, your tendencies, whatever you like. Recondition yourself. Brainwash. It's a Buddhist brainwashing session. And this we call the uh, contemplation, uh, like a particular meditation on developing consciously, intentionally, uh, developing strong, uh, positive thoughts and feelings. It's like a bringing up intentionally, bringing into the mind intentionally and holding into the mind, in the mind intentionally positive thoughts and feelings. And this is the practice of loving-kindness meditation. It, uh, its effectiveness is determined primarily by the power of the mind, how much concentration you can put behind the thought and the feeling. But it's a... It, each time we do it, what it does is to recondition the tendency of the mind. Instead of reacting to stimulation with a negative tendency, it, we can recondition to react with a positive tendency. Now, have you ever noticed that some people, it's not that they're more mindful than you, they're not more, you know, they're not more mindful. Like the person, there's a person who tends to get angry very often and speaks quite, um, you can say, his speech is not very kind, not very gentle, and uh, can be quite abrasive, grumpy, Mr. Grump, we'll call him. 
And then there's another person who's uh, quite often, um, you know, quite gentle in speech and uh, kindly in behavior. So Mr. Grump and Mr. Kind, Mr. Gentle, whichever you want. Why do they react differently? Why does one person, when there's an irritation, in, or what, you know, something happens and they get all you know, irritated and start uh, being very aggressive, the other person just lets it slide. It may not be because they, the other one is more mindful, or that one is less mindful. They can be equally about the same with regards to mindfulness. What is the difference? These are different temperaments. Yes, different temperaments. What's that? Oh, different characters. <laughs> it's just different conditioning. They are both reacting habitually, but their habit tendencies are different. Their character traits, their tendency, how they react to certain situations is different. That's condition. And we can recondition ourselves. You don't have to go to be reprogrammed. You can reprogram yourself. It's just the conditioning. Our tendencies, our habit patterns, our way of re reacting to stimulation, to situations, to conditions, is just a conditioned tendency, habit. It can be reconditioned. It can be children. The, gr the grumpy person can become the gentle person if they works at it. If that person really works at changing, <coughs> and this way is the way of reconditioning. So, through the practice of loving kindness meditation, it's like we do a special training. Special training of uh, for a start, one needs to be quite concentrated. You have to get the mind reasonably calm and quiet, and intentionally bring up the perception, in other words, perceive the, the, a positive perception, a positive thought, a positive feeling. Hold it in your mind, hold it in your being. And learn to bring it up and direct it, like, you know, this, this, this way of feeling towards, this way of thinking towards oneself, situations, people. So that each one of these uh, intentional uh, perceptions, intentional thoughts, then leaves an imprint. Karma simply means that a volitional action has a tendency to reproduce itself. The negative has a tendency to reproduce the negative. The positive has a tendency to reproduce the positive. So if we volitionally bring up positive, it has a tendency to reproduce positive. So now if we do loving-kindness meditation regularly, if we make that part of our lives regularly, work at it, what it does is it gradually changes our habitual tendency. So that even when we're heedless, maybe we won't react with so much negativity, irritation. Why? Because just like Mr. Gentle and Mr. Grump, hmm. Mr. Gentle has got a different temperament, so he reacts in that way. Even when he's heedless, he'll still react in that way. In the same way, if we recondition, so that our way of perceiving and our way of responding is becoming by nature more positive, by habit more positive, then even when our mindfulness is not perfect, even when our mindfulness is, is la in, uh, la lacking or lapses, we can and will we still not react, uh, will respond positively instead of negatively. So that this is, uh, I think, very important and very valuable because for most of us it's very hard to bring our mindfulness to a level which is constant and, or not even, if not constant, but at least reasonably present and regular. And most of us, uh, for a good portion of the day and a good portion of our life, are still coming from the habitual. Mm, very much so. 
And so we may as well work at that. You know, work at cultivating, uh, say, intentionally by systematic retraining of the mind, a positive perception, positive uh, habit, if you wish. And loving-kindness meditation is a very valuable tool for achieving that. Very, very valuable. Because all it is is uh, making the volitional uh, effort to imprint um, positive uh, feelings and thoughts into the stream of consciousness, which just by nature will tend to reproduce themselves again and again. And the way we see and the way we perceive is simply the condition that we have. So once it's re- we recondition it to more positive, we see more positively. And therefore we respond more positively. So this is, um, I think, quite a useful training. And I think all these three aspects of Dhamma, one is the investigation of the Dhamma in order to develop clear understanding of what this is, what this uh, negative state is, exactly what it is, see that, that it is suffering, see that it results from some unreasonable view of ours. There's some, uh, uh, just some really unreasonable demands that were, well they're not unreasonable in, in the sense that they're just unrealistic demands, is probably better. Unrealistic demands that we want to impose on life. See that, see that very clearly, then we make effort to establish mindfulness as much as possible. So as to guard against our negative habits, critical habits. And of course we also endeavor to take time to make a concerted effort to bring up intentionally uh, the positive so as to recondition our way of perceiving and our way of responding to the stimulation, to the situation. And with that a three-pronged approach, uh, it is quite possible for us to, um, yes, to, to begin to respond in a very different way to life and to situations. We can become more patient, we can become more tolerant, we can become more kind, but it does require, it does require wanting to do it. So I offer this, this uh, contemplation for you this evening, and, um, and you can consider it and maybe try it out a little bit and see if it works. If you need to, or maybe you don't need it, if you need it antidote for those who need it. Are there any questions?